Today's scripture text is from Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of our Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, as we come before you to hear your voice, I pray that you will speak in the ways we need to hear. And I pray that our hearts and our minds and our ears will be open. Give us a new love for you, a deeper yearning for your coming, a deeper zeal for your glory. May this time be set apart for your purposes and may your word accomplish the purposes that you have for it. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, there are seasons in life, you've probably experienced these, but they, they feel like you're really in between seasons. And usually it's as you're bringing to an end some season of your life, but before the next season is started and you just, you, you don't really feel like you're in the future season yet, you're still kind of in the previous one, but it just feels like you're in between. So a common one that probably everyone has experienced is if, you know, when you graduate from high school or from college, that last semester, uh, you probably know what's coming next, or at least you know that you're graduating or whether you're not graduating. Um, and so you know that you're moving on, but you're still in school. You're not looking to start new student organizations or, you know, join a sports team. Like you're moving on, but you're, you haven't moved on. You're just kind of waiting. And most students get what they call senioritis, where you have trouble finishing what you even need to finish. And it's just a weird time. Uh, if you've been pregnant, you've experienced this. Or if your wife has been pregnant, you've experienced this vicariously, which is not the same thing, I know. But uh, that last month, where you know there's going to be this life-changing experience, and uh, you know it's just around the corner, but it's not there yet. And you're just waiting, waiting for the baby to come. 
Um, I've never been old, but I imagine in old age there's a feeling of this too, where you've lived most of your life. You're not looking to start a new career. You're not looking to get married again. You're not looking to have more kids. But you're not with Jesus yet. And so you're waiting. You're in this in-between. And when we're in seasons of in-between, that can be exciting. It can be terrifying. It can be discouraging. It can be nostalgic. It can bring a whole host of emotions. But the season of Advent, what it does for us as Christians is it reminds us that, as a matter of fact, we are always in a season of in-between. Everything we do, every job you'll ever take, every uh, child you'll ever have, every move you'll ever make, no matter how it feels, whether it feels stable or instable, long-term, short-term, whatever, you are, if you, you are in fact in a season of in-between. And that season is the season that is in between the first coming of Jesus, when he came as a baby to die on the cross to cover the sins of the world, and the second coming of Jesus, when he will come to put an end to evil and sin and death once and for all. We as Christians, we live in this in-between, and Advent is a time for us to reflect on that and what it means for our lives and, and to learn to hope again and to yearn for the coming of Jesus. And so our Advent sermon series, this Advent, we're going to look at four different psalms that all um, kind of uh, are in the context of, of, of a time of in-between. So we have psalms that are uh, psalms of people who are wandering, psalms for people who are traveling, psalms of exile, people who are living in exile. Um, they're going to cover themes of suffering, of God's provision, of betrayal, and ultimately of our hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the one whom we are waiting for. Uh, so our, 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 our psalm this morning, Psalm 90, is a unique psalm because it is the only psalm we have of Moses, the great patriarch. Uh, he's one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. You don't get more important than Moses other than, I guess, Abraham. And we have this psalm that he wrote. And if anyone lived a life that was in between, it was Moses. And so there's a lot that we can glean from this. And one of the things we see in this psalm is that Moses gives us wisdom, a pattern for how do we live well in this time that's in between. And that's going to be our outline for us. So we live this time of in between. In the, or sorry, in our time of in between, we first point, we worship. Second point, we lament. And third point, we hope. So that'll be our outline for us. We're going this morning. We worship, we lament, we hope. Now, before we get into our, well, our first point, we worship. And, and, and I just want to get some context for this. If, if you have your Bible open, which is the best way to follow along, you notice right away, it gets, says, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Um, and it's interesting. Moses, as well as the nation of Israel that he is leading when he writes this psalm, have been wanderers from day one. The nation of Israel, from the moment the nation began, when God called Abraham to leave his home and leave Haran and go, which is what we read in Genesis 12 with the writing, lighting of the Advent candle, candle. From that moment, up until Moses writes this psalm, the people of Israel have been wanderers, strangers, living in a land that's not their own. They don't have, a, uh, they don't have ownership of the land. Uh, all the way through the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob. When Joseph leads them to Egypt, um, they are still sojourners in that land. They're not Egyptians. And eventually what is a voluntary, temporary sojourning turns into a long-term slavery. 
But even when God delivers them from slavery, Israel remains a wandering people because they spend 40 years wandering the desert. This is a wandering people. Moses himself was a, a man who did not know a home. Again, he was raised in the Egyptian palace, but he was a Hebrew. And so he didn't fit in with the Egyptians, but he also didn't fit in with the Hebrews, which he finds out later in his story. And he eventually has to flee for his life. He wanders for 40 years in the Sinai wilderness among the Midianites. And he leads Israel out of Egypt. And then he spends another 40 years wandering the Sinai wilderness again. Moses did not know a home. And I think that's why Psalm 90 resonates with us. Because more and more we're a culture of wanderers. Uh, I'm not going to do this, but what I, is there anybody here who was born in Louisville? Jenny, were you born in Louisville? No? So Pat? So we got three, four, okay. So we got four. So, oh, well, yeah, I mean, kids don't count. That doesn't, <laughs> anyone under the age of 60 who's lived in Louisville for a long time. My, yeah, Mike is born in Louisville too. Well, that one backfired. <laughs> Most of you, have, we're not born in Louisville. Uh, for many of you, if not most of you, where you are living now, you will not be living in 10 years, whether it's the apartment or the house. In 50 years, who knows where we'll all be? That's just the way our, our society is set up because of jobs, marriage, grad school, because we now have access to seeing, you know, we can get, get online and look at all the cool places around the country that we'd love to live. Like, there's, our society is built to be transient, and we can be nostalgic about that, and, oh, that's not the way, but it is how it is. We have become a wandering people. I've moved a dozen times in my life, and many of you have as well. And so more and more, Moses' experience here resonates with us, uh, which makes Psalm 90 so fitting. Because, and Moses begins this prayer with worship. And here's what I'm getting to with all his wandering. Because despite all his wanderings, and despite all the things he's experienced which he laments, he worships because God has always been his home. Look at verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth in the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, Moses had been many places, seen many things, and yet through it all, the one truth that he has kept with him is, oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home. God has been Moses' home. Again, we'll see Moses will have much to lament him out, but he begins with worship, because the truth of the matter is that despite it all, in the midst of it all, always God himself has been his home. Now, for us to understand why this causes Moses to worship, we have to unpack this image of a home. What does Moses mean when he says God has been his home? So what does a home do? Well, first, a home protects us. It protects us from the elements, rain, wind, sleet, snow. So as we enter the, the, the winter days, it gives us a warm place. He's saying through all of his wanderings, God has been his protector. God has been the one who has who's been his refuge, his safe place. Second, a home gives us stability. It gives us a sense of where we're going to be. I know where I'm going to be tomorrow night and the next night and the next week and the next month because I have a home. It gives us a foundation to build, to feel like we can build something on. So likewise, Moses says he's been moving left, right, and center all over the place, but God has always been this foundation that he could build his life on. The home gives us rest. Um, it's one of the few places where we can kind of like put aside all the facades that we wear, our various you know, roles, and we just, we're just ourselves. 
can just be at rest. And that's, been God, that's what God has been for Moses. And lastly, home gives us a sense of identity. Everywhere you live, like it forms you in a way, which is why leaving is, we never leave a place we've lived as if it's just like I'm changing my shirt. It's always like there's this sense of like I'm leaving part of me behind. Uh, you know, like my kids were born in that house. That's why when you sell your house and the new owners paint it, you get offended. You're like, how dare you paint my house that white color? That might be a real story. But homes, they, they form us. They give us a sense of identity. Moses is saying, God, you've been my identity. You've been what's formed me all along. What Moses is saying here is that all that makes home something that we long for, all that makes home something good, we actually find that ultimately in God himself. Everything that makes home something that we want, that we yearn for, that when we don't have, we miss it, all of that we actually find most ultimately in God himself. And this is an incredibly important promise for framing this psalm. Because the psalm gets a little dark. But this is so important, and it is an incredible promise. You might not feel like you've had much of a home during your life. God is your home. No matter where you go, no matter where you might end up, no matter where you've been, God is the home you've been searching for. And that's why, despite everything, Moses begins with worship, because through all of it, he's, God has been his permanent home. And the fact of the matter is, we don't have to think that hard to realize why God being a home is better than even having a physical home. Um, wow, my, I am like all tangled up. There we go. A couple months ago, I went running early in the morning, and uh, I'm running along a street uh, just a mile from my house, and I see fire trucks outside. And as I get closer, I see all the firemen, they're packing up their hoses, and they just put out a, a blaze in a house. It's a beautiful two-story house. Entire second floor is just completely gone. No roof, uh, just burned. And, I, and it's along my regular running route. And so every couple of days, I'd run by, and I, I would kind of witness the progression of them going through their belongings, trying to find what they could salvage. And so basically everything in the house was eventually like out on the front lawn, just strewn. A lot of it burnt, most of it ruined. And it was just an image of beautiful home. I'm sure there was a beautiful family that had created a beautiful life there and had a beautiful home. And yet, because of a faulty electrical circuit or whatever, it's gone. But that's not how it is with God. Instead, Moses tells God, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Again, he's speaking of a people who have been wanderers from the beginning. It doesn't matter whether they're in Haran or Canaan or Egypt or in slavery or wandering the barren desert of the Sinai wilderness. God has been their permanent home. That is a remarkable promise. And again, the reason why God is a better home than any other home we will find is because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And therefore, he is, every part of, of this world is the creation of our Father. And so no matter where you go, what happens to you, God will still be your home. This is such a comfort. No matter what, God will protect you. No matter what, he will be your foundation. No matter what, he will be your rest. So, if the stars align for you and you end up doing exactly what you'd hope to do with your life, living in exactly the place you'd hope to be living, married as you'd hope to be married with the kids you hoped you'd have, 
you don't have to rejoice overly much. Why? Because God was already your home before all that. And he'll still be your home. And that's still the most glorious truth. On the flip side, if your life doesn't end up like you had hoped it would, and you don't end up doing what you'd hoped you'd be doing, and you don't end up married, or you don't end up with the kids you'd hoped you have, you don't have to grieve overly much. Why? Because God will still be your home. It's an amazing promise. And so Moses, again, he begins with worship. He was a wanderer, a man who'd experienced a lot of difficulties, which we'll get to. But he begins with worship because despite that, through it all, God had been his dwelling place. God had been his rest, his refuge, his protector. And so he worships. Moses begins with trust because God has been his home. And the order in our sermon and the order that Moses prays is incredibly, incredibly important. The fact that Moses begins with worship tells us that when he gets to his lament, this is not just some cynical diatribe against God, but it is an honest lament, an honest plea from a heart that deeply trusts and worships the Lord. Moses had been given enough that despite what his life had experienced, God had shown him enough evidence of his goodness that he could worship. And it's the same for us. It doesn't matter what we've experienced, where we've been. God has shown us enough of his goodness that we can worship him. And so Moses begins with worship. But this, so that's our first point. We worship. What do we do in this season of in-between? We'll begin with worship because God is our home, no matter what. Secondly, we lament. Let me read verses 3 to 11. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. And we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, Moses laments two kind of intertwined realities, and it's the reality of death and sin. First thing he laments is the fact that we die. I mean, our life goes by so quickly. In verses 2, he's talking about, well, God is from everlasting to everlasting. God, because you are eternal, you have always been our home. But we, what are we? Verse 3, you return man to dust. Our life goes by. Our morning mist. You know, the older I get, and some of you find that very funny to say that the older I get. But as I said, as I always say, I am not as young as I once was. The older I get, it really scares me how fast my life is is going by. It feels like I blinked, and I was like in college, and then I blinked again, and I'm married, and I blinked again, and I have kids, and I blinked again, and none of my kids are babies anymore, and I feel like I'm going to blink again, and my kids will be out of the house. I'll blink again, and I'll be retired and approaching old age. It just, it goes by so fast, and here's the thing. For all the goodness in our lives, because God has given me good things, for all the goodness, we cannot hold on to them, and they fly out, and nothing we can do can bring them back. And at the end of the day, everyone dies. That's what he says in verse 5. 
You sweep them away as with a flood. It's talking about people, like a dream. Did you know that every day in America, on average, 9,000 people die every day? Every day in the globe, about 185,000 people die. It's a lot of death. Moses had seen a lot of death. He had seen Egyptians die in horrific ways. He'd seen Hebrews die in horrific ways. He would see Canaanites die in war. And so Moses laments because of the death in this world. But secondly, Moses laments over sin because Moses had also seen a lot of human sin and brokenness. Again, Moses had watched Pharaoh harden his heart again and again and again after God had given him extraordinary evidence that Yahweh is the Lord. And he watched Pharaoh harden his heart to the great tragedy and destruction of his own people. Moses had watched Israel again and again after receiving evidences of God's faithfulness and loving kindness grumble against God and reject God and disobey God. And of course, Moses had also seen the sin in his own heart when he grew embittered against the very people that God had called him to lead and he disobeyed God when God brought water from the rock. Moses had also experienced the consequences of sin. He had spent 40 years wandering in a desert. I've never actually, well, South Texas is pretty close to a desert. 40 years, and it wasn't his fault. It was the people for disobeying God. You know, when we read that story in our Old Testament, it takes us 10 minutes, and we're like, boy, that's a bummer. We move on. 40 years. Y'all, I haven't been alive 40 years. Some of you have not either. Some of you, that's like half your life or more. Moses had experienced that 40 years under the wrath of God. He himself never saw the promised land. The man who never knew a home never had one because of his own sin. And so it's no wonder that Moses prays, verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. And so Moses laments because of the death in this world, because of the sin in this world. But here's the thing. Moses laments for a reason. He laments so that the realities of sin and death might teach him wisdom. This is what he says in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Moses isn't just being a downer. He's not just depressed. He wants wisdom. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times we, we confuse wisdom and knowledge, right? Philosophy, the love of wisdom. But you're mostly just learning things. Knowledge is a matter of information. Uh, it's a matter of memorization. It's similar to, you know, you can download data on your computer where you can download knowledge into your brain. Wisdom is different. Wisdom is knowing how to live well. Not in the sense of like, you know, pursuing power, fame, and, and, and riches well, but well in the sense of how God has designed us to live well, well before God himself. Wisdom is being able to integrate all of the knowledge we have into our reality so that we live well according to how God has designed us to live. Knowledge is cheap. You can buy knowledge. Go buy a book, read it. You can, you know, I, I will never go to law school, but I can hire an attorney, and I can buy his knowledge. You can't buy wisdom. 
At the end of the day, wisdom comes from God himself alone because God is the God of wisdom. And so Moses brings his lament before God so that God would give him wisdom that he might live well. He asks that his sin and his transience would be teaching him how he is to live well. Now, I think, I, I think anyone, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious, can glean quite a bit from reflecting on our failures and our transience. I mean, anyone can realize how this brings humility in our lives and circumspection and perspective. But I want to take a moment, I want to ask, okay, what kind of wisdom does a Christian glean from this? Because Moses is writing before Jesus has come, and we live after Jesus has come, and that's a pretty significant event. And so what do we glean from this? What's the wisdom that we glean, especially for the fact that we live in this in-between? The first thing I want to ask is, for instance, should Christians lament sin and death? Peter has told us in 1 Peter 3, for Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In other words, Jesus has already suffered once. That was it for sin. And so every sin has been atoned for. So why would we lament sin? Likewise, Jesus rose from the grave. He broke death. Death has been undone. And so should we, even as Christians, should we lament sin and death? And and, and I would argue yes. And the reason is this. It's really simple. The reason we still lament these things is because we still sin and we still die. And to bring it into this season of Advent, the reason why we lament is because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so lament should be part of every Christian's regular practice. And I have three, I have three, three ways that lamenting uh, helps us live wisely as we wait for Jesus. And the first way is that lament, lamenting keeps us in the grace of God. Lamenting keeps us in the grace of God because we still sin and we still die. There will never come a time when we don't need the daily grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will never come a time in our Christian journey this side of eternity when, like, we got it on our own, when we'll have completed our sanctification. It just, it won't happen. And lamenting reminds us of that fact that we still need the grace of Jesus Christ. We didn't just need it the day we profess faith. We need it every day. There will never come a time when we don't need to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness from our king who offers it so readily. It keeps us in the grace of God, which helps us live wisely because at the end of the day, pride and self-sufficiency is folly, right? Whereas humility and repentance is wisdom. So first, lamenting keeps us in the grace of God. But second, lamenting prepares us for reality. Uh, Remembering that Jesus has not returned, it prepares us for what life will actually be like. There's a lot in American Christianity, especially American evangelicalism, which suffers from what is called an over-realized eschatology. I'll explain what that means. There is not enough of a distinction made between what the experience of life with Jesus in this life is like versus what it will be like when we stand before him face to face. Yes, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, have repented of your sin, you have Christ now. You have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. He's made you new. And yet at the same time, there is still sin, the flesh, and the devil. And so lamenting 
helps us have an honest expectation for what life will be like. Because you won't hear this necessarily said explicitly, but in a lot of churches, you'll get a sense, an assumption. It's built into the songs we sing. It's built into the, our, the, 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 you know, the ethos of the sermon. It's built into everything. And the assumption is this. Look, you've been forgiven. You've been made new. And so you really shouldn't struggle anymore. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be depressed. And if you're a mature Christian, you really shouldn't sin. Here's the problem with that. Jesus never made those promises. Instead, what is the reality? Why do we lament? Well, it's because we see Jesus as looking into a mirror darkly. It's kind of archaic language. The way that we see Christ is looking in, in, in a foggy mirror that's scratched and dirty, and we, we make out vague shapes. It's not clear. And so much of an honest life of discipleship deals with things that are not clear. And not only that, we, we worship a God who, who's seen fit to hide himself. And we can't find him sometimes when we desperately need him. And further following, again, Martin Luther, we really are sinners who commit real sins that Jesus really had to die for in order they might forgive us. If we're not prepared to lament, brothers and sisters, we'll be disillusioned and unable to cope when the doubts come, when lives take turns we don't expect, when our sin is really ugly. If we're not prepared to lament, we're not going to know how to handle this. So lamenting, it keeps us in the grace of God. It prepares us for reality, but third, it prepares us for heaven. It produces wisdom because it prepares us to long for heaven. As we lament, as we long for Jesus to come back, as we're honest about the sin and the death in, in our world, in our lives, it produces in us the desire of Paul, who said in Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If we as Christians don't know how to lament, how can we ever get to the point where we say, yeah, my life is beautiful, but I want to be with Jesus instead? If, every, if we have everything we need now, why, why, why do we care about Jesus coming back? Jesus, stay. Wait 50 years, because I got it great right now. Praise God for suffering. It prepares us to long for heaven. So again, lamenting keeps us in the grace of God. It prepares us for reality, and it prepares us for heaven, to be able to long for Jesus. So during Advent, as we live in this in-between, in between the two comings of Jesus, first we worship. Because through everything, despite everything, always and forever, God is our home. He is our refuge, our rest. But secondly, we lament. Because the world is full of sin and death, and because Jesus has not come back yet. But thirdly, and this is very important, we hope. We worship, we lament, and we hope. Let me read verses 13 to 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, 
and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I want to make a really important qualification here, and it's this. Biblical lament is never pessimistic or cynical. Um, Biblical lament is not just kind of like a cynical shrug at the absurdities of life. It's not what it is. Biblical lament is always an exercise in hope. And the reason why biblical lament is an exercise in hope is that biblical lament, at the end of the day, is a conversation with God himself. And so it's always hopeful. Again, Moses' lament, I mean, it's, you know, Psalm 90 is just beautiful and visceral and powerful and heavy, and Moses is honest, sometimes in ways that are hard to read with what he has experienced. Again, 40 years in the desert, never reaching home. I mean, Moses had some high points in his life, the burning bush, seeing God divide the Red Sea, but that, those are a couple high points in 120 years, if we take the biblical ages as, as literal, a long and hard life. And despite it all, and, and because Moses' life was so difficult, honestly in ways that I don't think any of us will ever experience, the way he finishes this psalm is so, so important. Because Moses, despite it all, believes it is still possible for him to be satisfied with the steadfast love of the Lord. And so that's what he prays for. He wouldn't ask for something he didn't believe was possible. Yes, he laments, but his lament is an exercise in hope. Despite all that he laments, he still thinks God can make them glad. And that it's still possible for them to marvel at the work that God has done. Cynicism says this. Cynicism says everything is less than it seems, everything is off, everything is worse than it looks, and that's just how life is. Biblical lament, on the other hand, says, I see all that is wrong, and yet I believe I can still rejoice in the love of God. Biblical lament says, I know there are things that are broken in this world, and despite all that is wrong, I believe I can be satisfied with the steadfast love of my Lord, and that he can make me glad, and I can marvel at what he has done. Brothers and sisters, if Moses could lament with hope, how much more can we, who know the risen Savior? Because the light of the world has come into the darkness, and although we now see him by faith, the darkness can never be complete. It means it doesn't matter how dark it may get. There is, because Christ has come, there will always be the hint of morning light coming. There will always be the echo of a better day. We lament because there's still death and sin. They're present in the fallen world, but at the same time we rejoice for our Lord has defeated death and atoned for sin. And we lament because Christ hasn't come back, but we lament with hope because he will come back. So here's the truth for our sojournings, for our own waitings for the Lord. Biblical lament is always an exercise in hope, for it is a conversation with God. And he is a God who never leaves us alone in our sorrows, but is a God who came as the light of the world. We always hope in our lament because we lament to a God with whom all things are possible.
even the forgiveness of sins, even the resurrection of the dead. So in our wanderings, God is our hope that he alone will satisfy us with his steadfast love. In our wanderings, God is our hope that he will return to us and bless us with his presence. In our wanderings, God is our hope that he will renew his work in our lives, in our families, in our communities. You know, Christmas can be a hard time for many of us. Um, Some of us have lost loved ones and family, and a holiday that is celebrated with loved ones and family just makes that clear. Well, for some of us, we have strained relationships with family, and we have to go see them over Christmas, and that just makes these wounds from the past raw. Some of us are, are, are tight on money, and, and Christmas is just another reason you have to spend money, and it's just stressful. And then there's a hundred other things that we bear that have nothing to do with Christmas, but it just happens to be what we're dealing with in this season. And so here's the question. What do we do if that's the case? What do we do? Well, the answer is really simple. It's what we always do. We worship. We praise God for he has always been and always will be our home, our refuge, our protector, our rest. We lament because we live in a fallen world and sometimes that is the only honest thing we can do. And because our lament, if it is directed towards God, if it is out of our worship, it teaches us how to live wisely in this time of in-between. And we hope because we lament to a God who is more than able to satisfy our longing hearts even when we find ourselves in the desert. We lament to a God who, no matter what, can still astound us, can still cause us to marvel, and can always renew us. Let's pray. God, may we find you to be our home through all generations, through all parts of life. May we find you to be our home. Teach us how to worship in all things, in all places. Teach us how to lament well that we might get a heart of wisdom. And above all, teach us to hope. To hope and to know that you are more than able to satisfy our yearning hearts. You are more than able to bring back to life what has grown cold and and, and, and tired. You are more than able to make us rejoice and laugh out loud at the wonder of what our God can do. May you do this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. Well, every month as a church family, we take time in our service to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this likewise, just like all of the Christian life, is both a worshipful and joyful event as well as a lament because we remember that our Lord had to die. But yet it's a lament that's hopeful because the blood of Christ is enough for all of us. And we can rejoice in the steadfast love of God that's demonstrated here and his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. At Vine Street, we see this meal as an outward and visible sign of grace that is shown to us in the death of Jesus. And as we share the bread and juice, 
It's an invitation for each one of us who partakes to feed on Jesus by faith. We don't actually eat Jesus, but as we eat, as we do this physical act, it's a reminder that we also feed on him in our hearts. We find our sustenance, our hope, our joy in Jesus. For in this meal, we are faced again with God's love for the unworthy. And we are strengthened by faith in the one whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. So this morning, I invite all who um, profess faith in Jesus Christ are living in accordance with his commands to join in this, in this Thanksgiving meal. If in good conscience, it would not be right for you to join. If you are not a Christian, uh, we ask that you let the, the elements go by and instead receive Jesus, who stands ready to receive anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. So I'm going to go ahead. And, oh, and also, at the rear of our sanctuary, we have an offering plate for benevolence. Anything given to benevolence is used to help members in our church family as well as in our immediate neighborhood who have financial need. And so there's an offering plate back there from our benevolence fund. Uh, with that, let me invite forward our ushers to stand here in front of me and let us open with a word of prayer. Jesus, we ask that you'll make this bread and this juice something that we can feed on in our hearts by faith. May you bring us back to Calvary and to the moment when the sin of the world was atoned for and when we were set free and when we learned beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved with an unending, never giving up love. May we take this with attitudes that are reverent, that are acceptable before you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.